This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas Kidd is Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University, where he also serves as Associate Director of Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. He writes regularly for the blog Evangelical History, hosted at the Gospel Coalition website. He also frequently contributes to news outlets such as World Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. Dr. Kidd has authored many books, including The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, and George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. His most recent book, this time from Yale University Press, is Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Professor Thomas Kidd, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Kidd, your book on Benjamin Franklin's religious life really addresses a dimension of Franklin that uh, that no one's written about and perhaps even really thought about for some time. How did you come to Benjamin Franklin's religious life for such a major project? Well, as you know, I published a biography of George Whitfield in 2014, and that led me into the discussion of Whitfield and Franklin's relationship, which started as a business partnership in the 1740s, but turned into a close and enduring friendship that lasted for 30 years. And uh, Franklin uh, really admired Whitfield in, in spite of the fact that Franklin clearly, as he, he wonderfully describes in his autobiography, uh, did not share all of Whitfield's faith um, and would go to Whitfield's revival meetings and, and uh, you know, listen with the rest of the crowd and try his best not to be swayed by Whitfield's gospel overtures. And so uh, it's, a, it's a mystery about Franklin's uh, faith or religious views and why he has these very significant relationships, not only with Whitfield, but with other evangelicals uh, in the 18th century, including his sister, Jane Meekom. Um, and yet Franklin is a skeptic and th- through the end of his life maintains skepticism about some key points of Christianity, including the divinity of Christ. And so knowing about that relationship more from Whitfield's perspective made me interested in um, investigating the whole story of Franklin's own religion. And then that led me to realize, and I didn't know this going into the project, that Franklin wrote an enormous amount on religion. We think that he probably published as an author more on religious topics than any other layperson in the 18th century. So I went into the project thinking, that I, it might be a bit of a stretch to do the project, and instead it turned it, in, it turned into a flood of primary evidence for me to sort through to understand what Franklin is thinking about religion. Now I want to ask you the easiest question in order to get to uh, uh, some things I want to, to really ask you and, uh, and press you about, but why in the world should anyone in the year 2017 care at all what Benjamin Franklin uh, thought about in terms of religion or held his religious beliefs? Well, for one thing, the the question of whether America was founded as a Christian nation or religious origins or secular origins um, is one of the most hotly debated historical questions in American and American politics today. So anytime we can take on 
the question of one of the major founders' faith, I think it has immediate uh, political, cultural resonance. I, I think that uh, Franklin in particular um, presents a, a fascinating um, uh, conundrum because he, on one hand, is, is outspoken about his skepticism. I mean, he says in, in the autobiography that he's a deist. So, I mean, we can take him at his word that he's some sort of deist. But then as you go through the body of his writings, his letters and publications, uh, the, the Bible and religious concepts, theological concepts, is omnipresent in his work. And so, what, whereas today we tend to want to say, you know, it's either an evangelical founding where all the founding fathers are traditional believers, or it's an entirely secular founding in which they're all skeptical deists um, and almost atheists, Franklin is a perfect example of why that di- dichotomy is a false one. Yes, and always has been. And, uh, you know, the other thing I think uh, Americans often think about when someone is uh, is raised like Benjamin Franklin is they think the revolution and they think of history from the revolution forward. I think one of the most interesting aspects of Benjamin Franklin is that he was a world-famous man, certainly in the English-speaking world, long before the revolution was conceived, uh, more or less even before – uh, such thoughts seem to have emerged into public life. This was a very famous man, and in that sense, an exemplar in many ways of the Enlightenment. So talk about that a bit. That's right. He is the oldest among the major revolutionaries, uh, quite a bit older than some of the other, like Madison and so forth. Um, and he lives an enormously long life. He lives into his 80s when in the 18th century. That's just very unusual to live that long for anyone. And so he sees a lot of changes. I mean, he grows up in a traditional Puritan family in Boston and then sees uh, the growing diversity and public role of skepticism about traditional faith emerge. Uh, And then on on a parallel track, he sees the enormous upswell of the Great Awakening in the late 1730s and 1740s and the coming of George Whitfield and the writings of Jonathan Edwards and he's able to observe and participate in all those those trends. Now, the the question of the Enlightenment is is just a, a hugely fraught uh, topic of debate among historians about was there an Enlightenment? What was the Enlightenment? Um, did Christians participate in the Enlightenment and, and so forth? But I think that at least we can say that the public role of skepticism about traditional faith was more pronounced by, say, 1800 than it was in 1700. And there's a trend towards more naturalistic understandings of various phenomena, whether you know a comet appears in the sky and, and do you intuitively say, well, this is a sign from God or this is a meteorological phenomenon, an astronomical phenomenon. Um, what, what is your gut a reaction towards those kinds of events. And Franklin is is undoubtedly leading the charge in many ways towards a more naturalistic view of the world in which we inhabit. And, and, and yet, uh, Franklin almost reflexively is uh, speaking about all these political and scientific developments that he participates in, in uh, biblical, biblicist sorts of ways. And so it, it's you know, striking that it's Franklin and Jefferson and Adams 
who are originally proposing that the national seal of the United States be a scene from Exodus in the parting of the Red Sea. Um, I mean, you know, we, we ended up with a, mu a much more, you know, not, not Christian kind of national seal with e pluribus unum. But but they, they it just comes reflexively to these men of the Enlightenment because they grow up in such a deeply biblicist world. And Franklin, I think, probably the most of all among the founders, does he grow up in that deeply biblicist world of the Puritans. I understand that the Enlightenment as an idea is fraught, uh, as you say, amongst historians, but clearly something happened. And, and that something was perceived then, just to take a figure like Immanuel Kant, as a major turning, turning point in, in thought. And it's perceived now. And I like the way you put it, that somewhere between 1700 and 1800, something happened. Yeah, this massive turn to the subject, uh, skepticism, uh, naturalism, and, and in terms of public life and public theology – all kinds of deisms. And, and I think one of the most interesting insights I got from your book is just remembering that when you're dealing with someone like Benjamin Franklin, you're dealing with a variety of deism. But let's put that in context for just a moment, because you do have the arguments made by many these days. As you said, uh, just a shorthand would be that the founding father, certainly the informative figures of the intellectual elite on both sides of the Atlantic, but particularly in revolutionary America, uh, they were deists. And uh, yet deism isn't just one thing. It, it has many subspecies. That's right. And, and I think you have the Enlightenment, the broader trend towards naturalism and skepticism, and then deism is a kind of subset of the Enlightenment, and in particular with regard to a more skeptical approach to traditional Christianity, traditional religion. Now, I think in, in American popular discourse about the founding, deism is usually seen as meaning only one thing, and that is the cosmic watchmaker view of God, in which God wound up the universe. There is a creator God, but then he wound up the universe and let it run on its own, and God has gone off somewhere and is not paying any attention anymore to human affairs. But that's only one part of what deism could mean in the 18th century. And I think that it, deism really, this, the hallmark of it is skepticism about something or some ideas about traditional religion. I think for, for Franklin, because of the context in which he grows up, it's very much a reaction against his parents' uh, Calvinist faith. And so some of his doubts have to do with a predestination uh, the election of the saints to salvation, and some rather particular doctrines within Calvinism, but also his perception that the Puritans were uh, very apt to be fighting about theological minutiae, as he saw it, um, and that he wanted to steer his religion away from bickering about theology towards living out Christ-like principles. And so, I mean, in, in many ways, Franklin saw himself as a certain kind of Christian, uh, you know, a, a primitive Christian, as they would put it, a, a Christian who's getting back to Christ's original teachings. This is, this is how he saw it. And so, you know, uh, Franklin, o over the course of his life, becomes more and more convinced, he tells us, that God rules over human affairs by his providence, and yet Franklin still considered himself a deist, and he, and, and he didn't see deist and Christian as necessarily contradictory. Traditional Christians, of course, would reject that 
and, and say that you know deism does not work, especially if you don't affirm the divinity of Christ, that that's not Christian. But this is the way Franklin saw things. But, you know, even in terms of classical deism, there wasn't an absolute rejection of divine providence. There was a, a, a rejection of peculiar or, uh, or specific divine providence. Uh, so you would have some of the deists who would have believed that there was God's uh, intention throughout history and its unfolding over sufficient time that moral judgment would be made. I mean, you have George Washington speaking sometimes in almost those terms. Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, I realize we're skipping uh, periods here, uh, but uh, would, would speak in much of the same way about divine judgment being meted out uh, in history. But still separating that from the claim that uh, this battle turned out this way because of divine providence. So t- t- taking the uh, the more general, uh, longer view. And the deists also wanted to preserve Christian morality. So it reminds me of the point that we've often made in the 21st century, that atheists are not of one species, that uh, they're generally rejecting some specific god. So when you look at the new atheists, they're not just atheists in general. Their arguments are against Christianity, against Christian theism. And so yes. the deists, uh, they were assuming not only morality, they were assuming a, the necessity of a Christian biblical morality. And uh, Franklin was an exemplar of that. He clearly believed that uh, a society would require a moral people living by a biblical morality. Yes, that's right. And, and I think, you know, the, the story of him being asked after the Constitutional Convention, what, what have, kind of government have you created? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. I, and, and if that story is true, and it sounds like something Franklin would have said, I think part of what he has in mind there is that a republic must be sustained by morality and virtue. And this is, I mean, this is just widely assumed among the founders, that if you're going to have a republic, that you have to have a virtuous people to sustain it, or else the republic will degenerate and collapse. Um, and, and so even uh, the most skeptical among the founders, uh, Jefferson probably is, is, is the most skeptical and, and strident, especially late in his life, uh, anti-Christian views and so forth. But he still says that Jesus's moral teachings are the most sublime that the world has ever, has ever seen. And, and Franklin certainly shares that opinion. So, I, I mean, Franklin is, over time, um, more and more convinced, I think especially during the American Revolution, he's so angry at the British. I mean, he goes from being fairly moderate about whether America should declare independence to during the course of the revolution, he becomes just very angry at the way that the King of England is prosecuting the war and so forth. And he says that for for these reasons, there has to be justice uh, ultimately um, if not in this life, then in a future judgment. And so Franklin says at the end of his life very clearly that among the doctrines that he does believe in is a future judgment by God uh, for the works that we've done in this life for good or ill. And and so, I mean, far far from him being this idea of a, an uninvolved God, um, God is ruling, and you're right, not, not necessarily in a meticulous or, or recognizable way, by providence, but that everything is going to be resolved by God in favor of divine justice. So if we were to generalize here, speaking for an example of the distinction between Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, in the example of Thomas Jefferson, we would have someone who 
as you said, by the end of his life, was abundantly specific in his rejection of the supernatural claims of Christianity, and in particular of the deity of Christ, and and by extension, all supernatural acts and uh, attributes uh, associated with Christ, uh, miracles, virgin birth, bodily resurrection, and all the rest. As you point out in your book, Franklin would often admit to questions, perhaps even a generalized skepticism about uh, those central and essential Christian doctrines, but he never flatly rejected them. That's right. He, he, I mean, I think some of this boils down to differences in personality. I mean, Franklin is, uh, we know this, he's a very genial character and, and doesn't, doesn't like being dogmatic, doesn't, doesn't like being uh, provocative. And he steers in that direction as a young man um, and becomes kind of a notorious skeptic in Philadelphia. And he takes a lot of flack for it. And he gets a taste of that and doesn't like it. And so for much of the rest of his adult life, I think Franklin is much more of a skeptic in the mode of raising questions, uh, undermining maybe some people's confidence about about theological certitudes, but never necessarily wanting to take firm, uh, certainly anti-Christian uh, positions the way that Jefferson does, and, and uh, certainly John Adams against Trinitarian belief. Uh, takes you know, very strident anti-trinitarian positions, um, but but Franklin is more um, you, you know non-committal. I would say as as a skeptic, and you know even at the end of his life when he has this wonderful exchange, uh, the, the the troubling in some ways with with Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale College, five weeks before Franklin dies, um, he he says that he can't be sure about whether Jesus was really the Son of God, that he could never quite convince himself that Jesus was fully divine, uh, but that he figured he would find out soon enough anyway, so it didn't really matter. Um, and so that that's the epitome of that kind of noncommittal, uh, good-natured kind of Franklin skepticism. You know, if you read certain of Franklin's statements writings— uh, you come to the conclusion that this man was at least a nominal Christian. If you look at others' statements, you think this man is at least a nominal atheist uh, or agnostic. <laughs> you use several adjectives about Benjamin Franklin, and what I want to suggest is interesting is that unlike a lot of books, you actually don't tie anything up neatly with this. Uh, so you begin the book saying he's not a very good deist because he's actually uh, arguing to pray for divine providence even in the assembly uh, of, uh, of the founding fathers together. A good deist actually wouldn't do that, consistently at least. And, and so you use adjectives like perplexing and then elusive. Uh, I want to ask you, and you've kind of hinted at this, was this a rhetorical, political, even commercial strategy on Franklin's part to remain elusive? That's a great question. I mean, I, I do think that he had gotten burned by – his ventures into radical skepticism as a late teen, early 20s. Um, during his extended trip to London, he published probably his most radical um, tract where he basically, you, you know, he deals with the problem of evil, of saying, well, it, it, since God is all-powerful, um, then, then that must mean that there isn't any good or evil because God couldn't permit evil, so there is no evil, which, you know, he's trying to be ridiculous 
to to force people to look at the problem of evil. And he says that he was embarrassed by this almost as soon as it came out, because he realized over time that uh, you, you just can't live like this. I mean, there has to be good and evil. Everybody believes right. in good and evil, and you you have to to uh, you know affirm that, or or else you really can't function in the world anymore. And so I, I think some of it is that he had his own profound doubts uh, about about traditional faith, about his parents' Calvinism. Um, but but he came to believe that he he did not want to be known for for that. Instead, he preferred to be known, if he could, for what he thought was the best of religion, which was its uh, encouragement of charity and benevolence and, and loving service, uh, especially to the least of these. And, and so he, he, I think, styled himself. I mean, Franklin is, is very uh, conscious of the way that he styles his public persona. And, and he just decided, partly, I think, because of his friendships with uh, George Whitfield, with his evangelical sister, Jane, um, that, that he did not want to trouble them or embarrass them. He really did believe that it was important for uh, the, the people to, to do their very best in works of charity and loving service. And so that, that's what he wanted to be known for. And so, yes, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a conscious decision to keep his doubts more to himself than he did as a young man, and to emphasize that what he wanted was a religion of charity and service, and whatever doubts he had about the the doctrines behind Christianity, he would just keep silent about or make it a, a joke. You know, these days the social historians make everything of uh, of economic issues and and related, but too many of us make too little of it. And I think it's important to recognize that Franklin was not particularly high-born by the, the culture of the day and was economically vulnerable as a young man. And until he established rather uh, significant wealth in terms of his printing business, he really could not become too scandalous or he would have been poor. That's right. I mean, there's one episode where he inserts kind of a, a anti-clerical joke in one of his shipping advertisements um and, and and you know about black gowns and sea hens and it's a, there's some suggestive connotations of of sea hens and uh it just unleashes all this uh you know vitriol towards franklin as a printer uh for for engaging in anti-clerical even anti-christian kind of talk and and he sees in that moment it, it elicits his apology for printers which is one of the first great defenses of a free press in American history. But you also see him scrambling there to say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-Christian. Don't worry about me. And he says specifically that it would be crazy for him to indulge in that sort of thing because so many of his customers are pastors. Absolutely. And, and he's still in Boston, after all, which is a, a, a very Christian city at that time, uh, so much so that it, it, it's uh, – uh, he, he he would have made himself scandalous beyond repair, uh, I, I think, certainly in doing the kind of business he was doing, had he been openly identified as, uh, uh, as an enemy of the faith. That's right. You mentioned theodicy, by the way. You didn't mention the word, but you, you mentioned the younger Franklin raising these issues. I had an impression in, in, in reading uh, your just really interesting recounting of the young Franklin. I had the impression that he raised some of these issues – with a, a bit of uh, 
well, arrogance, youthful arrogance, in failing to understand that some seriously-minded Christians had actually thought about these questions before. And he seems to be unaware of an entire world of Christian theology that had already existed, you know, dealing with some of these questions. I, I, I don't know if that was typical of, uh, of Franklin alone uh, or of others during the, the era, but he appears to know a great deal about a lot, with the exception of Christian theology. It's hard to know why, in his writings about theodicy, why he leaves out um, the, the the very well-established Christian arguments about the effects of the fall, uh, that, that God's mercy, uh, you know, holds back, back his wrath against humankind for all the evil that's in, in the world uh, until, you know, the, the final settlement of all things when Christ comes back. I mean, that, that's a very well-established, long-since-established argument in Franklin's world. I, I think he probably did know about it, but for maybe rhetorical, argumentative purposes, decided not even to address it. It's puzzling because he certainly knows the Bible. Um, he knows the Bible backwards and forwards, the text of the Bible. Um, and he did grow up certainly reading a fair amount of theology. Um, but yeah, it's an immature kind of production, especially the one about uh, there, you know, if God is all powerful, then He must not permit evil. So there is no good and evil. It's it, even Franklin it's fairly adolescent. realizes yeah. that this is just kind of immature sort of pop philosophy, and that, that doesn't really work very well, especially in light of the fact that Christians have already given a good answer to this. So I find that 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 episode is is sort of mystifying, given the context that he grows up in, and, and certainly his uh, deep familiarity with the whole text of the Bible. For far too many Americans, our founding fathers as we know them are like cutout figures. They're cardboard and static. That's a problem. And of course, they're also known in their portraits on our coins and on currency. They may have faces on Mount Rushmore. It's hard for most Americans to cut through all the levels of myth and sometimes even what's claimed to be history and biography to rightly understand these individuals. They were flesh and blood human beings embedded in a specific moment in history. And it's important that we do come to terms with them. I appreciate the fact so much that Thomas Kidd, in this case, gives us such a new view of Benjamin Franklin, a new perspective on a question that has often not been asked, and that is, what exactly did Benjamin Franklin believe? And in specific, what were his religious beliefs? Whatever they were, it's important that we come to a rightful, true, and credible understanding of them, not only so that we will rightly understand Benjamin Franklin, but so that we can also understand these issues concerning ourselves. I have another thought theologically and ecclesiologically reading this book. One of them is that uh, clearly in terms of congregational Calvinist Boston or New England, and, and, and by the way, we're using the word Calvinism here, And I do think we need to reflect upon the fact that what Franklin was rejecting included both what you might call distinctive Calvinist doctrines, such as predestination or uh, particular redemption, but he also denied or was extremely skeptical about classical Christianity that uh, that would not be considered merely Calvinism, but rather just classical biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, basic issues and doctrines of the deity of Christ and Trinitarian faith. 
But it seemed to me that even though it would have been very awkward for him to have claimed any kind of identity with that congregational Calvinist uh, tradition, he would have made a rather convenient Anglican. But he wasn't really interested in Anglicanism either. He attended Anglican services in Philadelphia, but it seems to me that uh, Anglican faith was much more significant to his wife, Deborah, mm-hmm. than it was to, to Ben Franklin. And, and he certainly donated money uh, to help grow Christ Church there in Philadelphia. Um, some reason to think that he was hoping that it would build, build a really tall steeple for his uh, experiments with lightning. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it doesn't, it seems like that so much of the imprint is from the Puritan heritage. And you're absolutely right that some of his skepticism is about specific doctrines related to Calvinism. And then some of it, obviously, with the denial or at least hesitation about the divinity of Christ is a much more fundamental Christian issue. Um, But I I think it's that childhood inheritance of, of Puritanism rather than Anglicanism that makes the deepest imprint on him. Um, and it's it's not hard to understand why. I mean, it's a very rigorous environment that he grows up in with catechism and Bible reading and prayer and attendance at church probably two or three times a week, hearing uh, deeply learned, long expository sermons, uh, probably thousands, uh, you, you know, over over time for him. And it's no wonder that this leaves this imprint of of, of the Bible uh, that shapes the way that he talks, the, the way that he jokes, his similes and anecdotes. Uh, it, it shows up everywhere. The idea for the national seal. It's, it shows up everywhere for Franklin because of that childhood imprint. And then he moves into his skeptical phase. And so he, while he's in Philadelphia, at least. Uh, he is an adherent to to Anglicanism, and that's that probably is is what he does for for at least the first half of his adult life. We don't know as much about whether he was attending church in uh, in England while he was a diplomat there, and and of course he always found Catholicism while he was in Paris more of a curiosity than anything else. But the intellectual inheritance is definitely from the, the Puritan tradition. Yeah, I don't doubt that for a moment. That's, uh, that, that's incontrovertible. But uh, I, I'm just making the point that his beliefs or his skepticism, either way, they could have found a safe home within Anglicanism in a way that they certainly could not in Puritan nonconformity. There were plenty of Anglicans, I'll just say, in good standing with the Church of England who would have held similar beliefs and were frankly quite open about them. Uh, so I'm just thinking politically and sociologically, it's just interesting that uh, that Franklin kept his independence from all uh, organized religion in the sense other than with his wife. Uh, he was certainly even, I, I believe, listed in the parish, but his his identity is just not distinguishable. That's why you use words like perplexing and elusive. And also yeah. when it comes to the issue of of Franklin and religion, one of the key questions that, that has been addressed in previous works is what happened in the second half of Franklin's adult life. How, how did his friendship with George Whitfield change or, or, or change not his, uh, his understanding of these, these basic theological questions? Well, it's, it is a very peculiar friendship. I mean, it's it, because they are not on the same page. Um, and, and Whitfield, to his credit, 
uh, does not pull any punches. I mean, he, he periodically, we have it documented, I'm sure it was much more in conversation, uh, that, that he implores Franklin, Whitfield implores Franklin to put his faith in Christ for salvation and to be born again. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a charming relationship, I think, in, in, you know, today's context, it seems so hard for people who are very different religiously to maintain friendships like this. And I think it speaks well to both men that they were able to maintain what I think was a very close friendship of admiring, um, and, and, and close friendship for 30 years in the context of their differences. I think that that Franklin for sure becomes more muted in his skepticism just because he knows that if he speaks out uh, that he will have to answer to the very formidable George Whitfield and also the very formidable Jane Mecom, his sister, who's a devout evangelical believer but not famous like Whitfield and, and very modest. Uh, she was really was poor. Um, and and I, I say in the book that those relationships, I think, help to tether him to traditional faith, even if he doesn't ultimately embrace it, because he respects these evangelical figures in his life. He loves them, um, and he doesn't want to unnecessarily offend them. He takes them seriously, so much so that um, later on, he even proposes founding a colony along with Whitfield in the Ohio River Valley country. And, and says that we can have a, a society that will be more fully devoted to Christian principles and will treat Native Americans fairly, and it'll be great. <laughs> wow. I mean, imagine Franklin and Whitfield founding a colony together. And it, it was just, I mean, it was a transient thought that he, that he had, but it speaks to just how deeply personally sympathetic he was to Whitfield, even though he couldn't ultimately cross the line of faith, the way that Whitfield implored him to do. Now, I really appreciate you including in the book one specific way that Whitfield implored him to do just that. Uh, you uh, you go back to his his epitaph written for himself. I think it was 1727 when Franklin wrote this epitaph as he looked to his own death. He spoke of his uh, body being food for worms, and then speaking of the body, he said, "For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author." And and just to interject there, again, if you looked at that, you would say, oh, my goodness, that sounds like a Christian. And the yeah. day of resurrection, and it sounds like a f- you, could, you could overread then a full affirmation of, uh, of classical Christianity. But my point is that as you point out, uh, I think it's uh, page 177 in your book, Whitfield in 1755 responded to Franklin's epitaph by saying, believe on Jesus and get a feeling possession of God in your heart, and you cannot possibly be disappointed of your expected second edition, end quote. There's a very, there's a sweet friendship in that. It is, and, and you know, Whitfield, you, you, you would think today we might feel some obligation to not be so forthright and, and, and bold in, in, in Whitfield's witness. And, and, and it's a great example, I think, of uh, Whitfield's integrity in the sense that here you have the greatest preacher of his generation um, who also takes the obligation to personal evangelism so seriously. So it goes from crowds of you know tens of thousands of people down to this personal relationship, now obviously with a very famous and influential person. Uh, but but Whitfield, um, and this was that kind of comment from Whitfield to Franklin was typical of their relationship, 
And yet Franklin at the end, when, when Whitfield dies in 1770, uh, quite a, a long time before Franklin dies, and Franklin, just in private correspondence, talks about how much he loved Whitfield, how much he admired him, and says that he would never see uh, Whitfield's integrity ever surpassed in any other person. He didn't need to say that. I mean, it's a private letter he's writing in. And I think that tells you how much he really did care for Whitfield. In 1728, Franklin wrote uh, an article that we could uh, summarize the title of as Articles of Belief. Inconclusive. But inconclusive in a Christian frame. His Articles of Belief at least derive from the Christian uh, faith and tradition, even if they're not an expression of it. Then at the end of his life, uh, or toward the end of his life, his autobiography, he mentioned five different beliefs. Uh, First, that there is one God who created the universe and who governs it by his providence. Second, that he ought to be worshipped and served. Third, that the best service to God is doing good to men. Four, that the soul of man is immortal. And five, that in a future life, if not the present one, vice will be punished and virtue rewarded. Now, Professor Kidd, the reason I I read those all, and especially with emphasis on number five, is because you rightly point out in the beginning of the book that the call for prayer for the meticulous providence that that, uh, Franklin sought meant that he wasn't a very consistent deist. But here, at the end of your book, I would argue that, looked at theologically, this isn't even less consistent deist. How did Franklin change over time uh, on this question as reflected even in those five articles of belief? I think that as time wore on, and I suggested some of this earlier, that that his experiences in the American Revolution, um, and this was very common to, to, I think all the founders were uh, burdened by the weight of what happened in the American Revolution. I mean, we, it's, it, it all seems inevitable to us looking back on it, but it was, it was such a difficult decision for them to even uh, take up the question of independence. And it seemed insane you know, at the outset to, get, to take this on against arguably the most powerful military on the face of the earth. Uh, to to go up against the effectively non-existent American military, and and, and they, they, so many people thought that the American patriots would just be crushed, um, and so to, to to watch the political process and then and then the the military struggles and victories, and of course Franklin is there in Paris securing the French alliance, which you know absolutely indispensable for the Americans winning. The, Amer- the the Revolutionary War to have the French assistance and then and then independence secured and then the Constitution um, ratified through the struggles that that required. Um, so many of them said, even if they had been skeptical about this before, they look at that national history um, and they go back to the verse that you know, can a nation be born at once and can a nation be born in a day and they they think this this has the the sense of the miraculous about it, um, and 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 so Franklin, I think, is is driven along. And you mentioned Lincoln before. I, I think there's a lot of comparisons here to be made with with Lincoln. The Lincoln early skepticism, and then the weight of the presidency, and the incredible difficulties of the Civil War. I think steer him towards a greater sense of God's providential role in history. And uh, Franklin senses that too. And so by the end of his life, as you suggested, 
he is not only willing to um, affirm the idea of God moving in history, but also to affirm that there will be uh, a future judgment of, of the good and, and bad works, and that we are accountable to that. I want to go back to where we began when you mentioned the relevance of Franklin's religious life to today, and you mentioned contemporary controversies, including the question, is America, was America a, a Christian nation? I'll admit a bit of perplexity in, in terms of that question, and, and I was raised in, in the midst of some of those discussions. I can remember as a teenager hearing messages, one in particular on, on why Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. I later read Thomas Jefferson, and as a Christian came to understand Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. And, uh, but I understood also what was at stake in terms of the larger cultural conflict, and the question was uh, concerning America and its origins. And it seems to me that you've got these two ridiculously polarized uh, conversations going on uh, where you've got on the one hand people arguing that uh, that all of the founders were Christians. They baptized them in a way that I think does incredible injury to biblical Christianity and to the gospel of Christ. And furthermore, just isn't just isn't even credible uh, on on documentary terms. You don't have to you don't even have to engage in historiography. All you have to do is be able to read documents. Uh, that just fails. On the other hand, you've got this enormous uh, intellectual trajectory coming, especially out of the 1950s and beyond, where you have the denial of uh, of a Christian influence and basically the uh, the denial of a Christian structure of thought uh, to the, uh, the 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 founding. Uh, I want to say just fathers, but mothers to the to the uh, the colonial and revolutionary Americans. And it, it seems to me intellectual honesty which I, I just want to say I appreciate in your works, uh, all of them, and in particular in this one, is, is to treat uh, the individuals with honesty and uh, to apply a, 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 a very credible historiography uh, to the individuals, to the era, to the time, to the documents, uh, but at the same time uh, to recognize that there is a, a theological backdrop here and background that can't be denied. There, there is a specific skepticism even that, that marked the most skeptical, and that was a skepticism concerning Christianity. Christianity haunted even the skeptics and, and created their frame of moral reference. Yeah, I think haunted is the right word. Um, I, think, I think Jefferson is probably even more haunted than, than Franklin. You grow up um, with Franklin in this in, intensely biblicist environment, and, and even though you try to run, you can't quite get away from it. And they're also um, profoundly living off of borrowed Christian capital. Um, and, Absolutely. And, and, and we said it in, in the question of, is morality, Christian morality, indispensable to the life of the Republic? And there was vast consensus on that. That that we we needed strong religion churches uh, to fuel the life of the republic, and if we didn't have that, we would degenerate and and the republic would collapse and lead to the rise of a, of a strong man to restore order. That's just classical republican theory, but it, it it syncs up, I think, very well with Christian ideas about morality and and virtue. Maybe not syncing up with where that morality and virtue comes from. Uh, you know, you know the Jonathan Edwards idea is that true virtue comes from the regenerated heart and work of God in, in the life of a believer, where you know, Franklin certainly didn't see the need for that kind of regeneration and thought you could do this through simple moral effort and discipline practice, this kind of thing. 
So, but if if the question is, do we need Christian morality? Um, there's so much overlap in, in assumptions that are being made. And so I think people like Franklin, like Jefferson, are tinkering with their own skepticism about particular doctrines um, and questions about salvation. Um, and, and that's very important. But when you come to public affairs um, and the nature of a republic, uh, There's such broadly shared Christian assumptions that they couldn't even possibly question it. I mean, right. it, it would never even occur to them to question the idea that Christian morality is essential to the life of, of a republic. And so I think when you go to people like Jefferson and, and Franklin, I mean, I would be first in line to tell you if they were Christians. I, I, I wish they were Christians. I want everybody to be a Christian. So, I mean, but but when you see somebody denying the divinity of Christ, when Jefferson produces the Jefferson Bible, quote unquote, which is an edition of the Gospels, that ends with them rolling the stone in front of the grave and going away. <laughs> I mean, you say, Absolutely. from a Christian standpoint, yeah. this is utterly unacceptable. And and we, we just have to, because if the Gospel, if biblical truth is the number one priority, then we have to say that kind of religion is not Christianity. On the other hand, there's so many themes and inheritances and intellectual traditions within even the minds of the most skeptical founders that you can see the influence of biblicism and Christianity everywhere in the founding. So, I mean, it, it, it's, I'm, I think sometimes I'm a kind of an equal opportunity offender in, the, in these kind of discussions because, you know, conservative Christians so often go to trying to say that the uh, the saints of our civil religion, uh, you know, the founding fathers, they had to all be Christians uh, because, because we're a Christian nation. Therefore, they had to all be Christians, whereas the secularists say, no, 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 none of them were Christians. They're all very skeptical deists, probably closet atheists, um, and, and religion has nothing to do with the founding. Uh, of course, the historical facts suggest that there was a third way in the founding. Well, there's a third way now. That's the thing. I, 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 you may be an equal opportunity offender, and if so, so, uh, so am I, and have been for a long time on this. But the, but the reality is that Christians, biblically-minded Christians, actually do always have this category. You have a category of people who who have a Christian frame of reference, but you don't believe they've been converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've given no right. credible claim or testimony of it. And some of them are even openly uh, rejecting uh, Christian doctrines, or even the necessity of uh, of coming to faith in Christ, but their frame of reference is still entirely Christian, in a moral frame, even in a general theistic frame. Uh, I mean, this is the this is the nominal Christian uh, experience in America, and in the intellectual elites, it's always been kind of a third option. Uh, it, it might be the option that's disappearing fastest in the. Uh, in uh, in the elites of our culture right now, but certainly it was indispensable to the intellectual furnishing uh, of the mind in colonial America. That's right, and and I do think that one of the things that's at stake in a in a book like this and our understanding of the founding fathers is that to the extent that dominant American culture is turning towards the primacy of individual expression. 
uh, amoral license and, and so forth. And we see evidence of that everywhere in our, in our culture and in the news today. Uh, the, the, the culture of the founding contradicts that, not because all the founding fathers were Christians, uh, in, in, at least in a, you know, in a biblical evangelical kind of sense, um, but because they assumed that in order to have a republic that will thrive, uh, you had to have virtue, and virtue came from faith. And most of and them so, thought very well of Jesus. I'm not saying of Christ, uh, making that distinction that uh, that did emerge in that frauded Enlightenment age. But nonetheless, uh, in other words, they, they uh, it, it was it was Jefferson who very much wanted to talk about the life and morals of Jesus uh, in that yes. truncated New Testament you mentioned. And uh, and Franklin made many statements of appreciation. Again, Christians, evangelical Christians, can overread that, not understanding what what is being rejected as well as being affirmed. That's right, and, and it's, it's you don't have as many people like this. I mean, at least articulate people like this today. I mean, certainly in the the South, there's a lingering uh, Christian culture in which people will will certainly affirm, you know, the the importance of the Bible and biblical morality, even though they're not converted. Um, but more commonly, what you have today is is the, the people where there's there's no overlap and and they can't see any kind of value coming out of biblical morality and that and that Absolutely. as I said individual expression is the rule of the day as long as you don't harm someone but of course even that I mean you get you get the idea well where how do you know it's wrong to not harm other people and and you know well this is just what we agree on but the the foundations are are, are crumbling for for the 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 founders I mean, they would. Jefferson says that Jesus's moral teachings are the most sublime moral philosophy ever known to man. But your absolute distinction between Jesus and Christ is is an important one, and they're representative of that kind of turning towards saying, "Can't we just take Jesus's moral teachings and forget about the Bible's claims to him being the Messiah?" I had another thought reading your book, and then completing your book, I recognized you had the thought too, and uh, that was that. And, and, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, and uh, part of it is is because I've been doing a project looking back at the middle of the 20th century. So Christian Smith and his associates, looking at the religious beliefs of young people, uh, came, I think, to the now uh, rightly uh, famous or infamous designation of that civic religion as held by American adolescents and now emerging adults, as he calls them, being moralistic therapeutic deism – and, uh, and and clearly, that's not biblical Christianity. But the other thought I had when I read Christian Smith and, frankly, had one of these conversations with him and thinking in public, my thought was, you know, there's an old, very old American tradition like this. I mean, you, you could even say Dale Carnegie and uh, and Norman Vincent Peale were very much a part of the same thing. And going back further, you can, you can find plenty of 19th century evidence. And uh, then it pops up in your book, I was glad to say. In, in a sense, what Franklin and some of the others were looking for is an expression of moralistic, therapeutic deism that fit the the late 18th century. That's right. And, and you know, I, I talk about that in the book, although I choose to call it doctrinalist, moralized Christianity, just because I think uh, Franklin's kind of view on this is a little more, well, it's more intellectually serious than what you get today. Um, and it's a little more hard-edged, I think, that the therapeutic— A little less therapeutic, much, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a, a yeah. Part of it. And, and the moralism is, I think, a bit more principled and serious, that, that it's this view 
that in order for the republic to survive, you have to people have people who are uh, benevolent and concerned about society and public good and and the public welfare and and are willing to sacrifice themselves to serve that good. I mean that that, that that's not so much in, in on the radar screen for moralistic therapeutic deism. No, but it is in the background, I would argue. It's a, it, it's yeah. a, in one sense it's a precursor to that. I want to shift to one other thing. I remember a Gordon Wood essay on uh, George Washington and the distinction between public and private character. And uh, George Washington, uh, his absolute determination to demonstrate at all times an upright public character, believing that was his responsibility as a citizen, as a general, and later, of course, as, as president of the United States. But that distinction between public and private morality or character, that certainly comes to mind in terms of reading a biography of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, you treat these issues very carefully, but, but what was that distinction in Franklin's mind? Because we're talking about Christian morality, but that didn't exactly restrain Benjamin Franklin in terms of, <laughs> of his private life. Uh, that's correct, and and I definitely talk about it in the in the biography. Once he reaches middle age, that he engages in a series of of inappropriate relationships with uh, often with much younger women, um, and he is silent about how his code of virtue, which he commits himself to, uh, how that syncs with his uh, series of relationships with these with these women. Um, and and I do think it it has to do with that public-private distinction. I think that's an astute observation because, on one hand, Franklin is uh, is I think much like Washington, rigorously committed to public service, um, and feels like that once he has become independently wealthy, um, that he's obligated to uh, serve the public interest as a diplomat, as a scientist. And these sorts of things, and you see, the, I mean, one of the things that's so delightful about Franklin is it's just he he tries all these things in American history for the first time. So, uh, you know, founding the the uh, hospital in Philadelphia, and he's one of the main charitable backers for this. He makes a specifically, it's one of the most Christian writings he ever produces, un, uh, just unambiguously Christian, that he says, as Christians, we're supposed to take care of the least of these, and we have these indigent people who aren't receiving any kind of treatment. We need a hospital. And, that, and uh, people are doing this in Europe now. We need to commit ourselves to do this, but to, to demonstrate our seriousness as a Christian society in Philadelphia. Um, and, and so for Franklin, I think there's a way in which being engaged in that sort of thing in uh, the, the founding of what would become the University of Pennsylvania in his representation of the colonies and the United States as a diplomat and his, his tireless service for the nation, that the, all these kind of things can run along a parallel track to his inappropriate relationships with these younger women. Now, obviously, Franklin's never going to explain this in any kind of public way, uh, but, but I do think th- that he probably excused in his mind some of this uh, more salacious behavior that he engages in by his belief that, well, I'm serving the public good, and so my private behavior, uh, especially when there's you know, you know, willingness on, on the part of these, these ladies to engage in these relationships, that doesn't matter as much, or at least that's what he told himself. And of course, there's the entire uh, incredible story. It'd be an epic story just taken by itself of the the breach between Franklin and his illegitimate son uh, William, uh, 
uh, over the American Revolution. Uh, I was in London just days ago, and I walked by the the old uh, St. Pancras Church, and uh, that's where William Franklin is buried, although his grave is now lost, I discovered once there at the churchyard. Uh, but, uh, you know, just, just this horrible epic story. But it is with Franklin and his illegitimate son and, and that, that private public character or virtue distinction. Uh, here I was thinking about it in a London churchyard. Uh, but uh, now with you today, I want to ask you another question. I can draw a direct line from your first uh, major work published on The Great Awakening to Patrick Henry to George Whitfield, from George Whitfield to Benjamin Franklin. Uh, where do you go next? Well, my next project is that I'm actually writing an American history textbook for B&H Academic um, that is going to be pitched to college freshmen, um, maybe advanced high school students. I think that along these lines, I mean, there, even at the textbook level, there tends to be this gulf between, uh, you know, rigidly secular textbooks, which is the standard of that that you know is is secular and is some is assumptions and views religion uh, skeptically um, and, and, and the second half of American history often just entirely ignores it except for uh, maybe the moral majority. And then on the other hand, you have uh, Christian kind of providentialist histories that, that you know, uh, advance kind of the Christian nation thesis and, and the overwhelming uh, Christian presence in, in the revolution. And it seemed like to me and to, to be an H academic that there was a need for a, a kind of um, more balanced approach that would work well, especially in the Christian college market. And so I'm busy uh, writing away at that, having a great time. Um, I'm, I'm up through the, the 1970s now, but I'm intending to take it at least through the 2016 election, uh, which should be a lot of fun to try to <laughs> explain that. That should test uh, you as an historian. I'll, uh, I'll look forward to uh, that. That's one of those books that, uh, given what you just said, I might read from the last chapter forward. Uh, but because uh, that, that will give you a whole new test. Uh, Professor Thomas Kidd, as always, great to talk with you, and I uh, appreciate your work so much. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much. In this new book, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father, Professor Thomas Kidd presents Benjamin Franklin as involved in an internal tug-of-war between skepticism and traditional faith. By the time we come to the end of the book, honesty compels us to say that it appears that in that tug-of-war, skepticism had the stronger hand. There are more indications of this most fundamental skepticism on the part of Benjamin Franklin all the way to the end of his life than any suspicion of an affirmation of traditional Christianity. That's simply not made possible by Franklin's own statements, and rather consistent statements over time. But that is not to say that Benjamin Franklin was not involved in what Thomas Kidd calls an internal tug-of-war. He clearly was. You can see it in his writings, you can see it in his actions, and yes, you can see it over the decades of his very long life. One of the most crucial insights you gain from reading this book is that that tug-of-war was witnessed by others, his sister for one, and perhaps even more significantly, George Whitfield, one of the most famous evangelists not only of his age but of all Christian history. In thinking of his friend Franklin, Whitfield said in 1752 that Benjamin Franklin had, quote, made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity. But Whitfield went on to say, I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth, end quote. 
All the way to the end of his life, George Whitfield demonstrated this concern about his friend Benjamin Franklin, about the state of his soul, and about the fact that Benjamin Franklin had resisted, perhaps even rejected, the very idea of his need for a Savior and for the experience of the new birth. We learned several lessons as evangelical, gospel-minded Christians from Whitfield here. In the first place, we learned how not to overread, perhaps, the inclination to Christianity or even the experience of the new birth. Just because persons are our friends, because we care about them. George Whitfield clearly cared deeply about Benjamin Franklin, but that did not mean that he overlooked the fact that Franklin clearly had not experienced a conversion to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we learn is just dogged persistence. George Whitfield, to the very end of his own life, was doing his dead-level best to make certain that Benjamin Franklin was confronted with the claims of Christ, with the truth of the gospel, and with a call to repentance and faith a call to conversion. Just from a Christian perspective, how amazing is it for us to imagine that there once was a time when figures such as Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield walked the earth, and not only that, walked the earth together. One of the interesting things for us to reflect upon is the fact that it really does matter to us what Benjamin Franklin believed, because given Benjamin Franklin's role in American history and in the American imagination, it still matters. It matters eternally for Benjamin Franklin but it also matters in terms of our understanding, not only of Franklin, but of our nation and of ourselves. This is the kind of history that greatly aids us in that kind of understanding. Thanks again to my guest, Thomas Kidd, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mogler.